Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Sandra Thurlow discusses her book, Gilbert's Bar, House of Refuge, Home of History. He remembered uh, Florida and its warmth and the hospitable family, and he came back and he married the daughter of the keeper who found him and nursed him back to life. We'll look at the history of Coca-Cola bottling in Florida. My daddy had one truck. They sold so little Coke, they took it everywhere. And we'll visit La Coochie, which was a thriving sawmill town until the late 1950s. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The population of Florida was sparse following the American Civil War. Only small pockets of civilization existed along Florida's east coast. In her book, Gilbert's Bar, House of Refuge, Home of History, Sandra Thurlow explains that houses of refuge were built along Florida's coast specifically to service shipwreck survivors. They had clothing that was collected by uh, women that were uh, the type of women that do worthy causes, and they kept the clothing. Sometimes it wasn't particularly appropriate clothing, but they had that. They had enough food to feed uh, 25 men for two weeks or so. And this was government issue. Supply boats came, and they kept it, and sometimes it's boiled. And these things were written into the logs and the reports. And uh, so they, uh, you know, they had cots. They would let them, uh, you know, sleep there until they could get them to civilization. In the early days, when there were only sailing ships, that was harder. Once the Flagler's Railroad came down in, um, you know, in the 1890s in southern Florida, uh, in 1894, um, they could put them on the train and send them to civilization. While these houses of refuge must have certainly been a welcome sight for shipwreck survivors, it's not as if boats were sinking off of Florida's coast on a daily basis. In fact, shipwrecks could be few and far between. Years would go by, I think, and there wouldn't be a major shipwreck, but they served another purpose of just being a governmental presence in a wilderness, and so travelers would know that there was someone there and could stop. Some of the houses of refuge 
furnished uh, boats water from their cisterns and just to uh, have contact and if they had engine trouble, just simple things besides the real uh, important shipwrecks, and they, they happened as well, but only occasionally. Although there apparently wasn't an overwhelming demand for houses of refuge to service shipwreck survivors, Sandra Thurlow explains that 10 of them were constructed along Florida's east coast. In 1876, they built the first five, and they were numbered one through five. And the northernmost one was in today's Vero Beach. The next one was in today's Stewart. The next one was in uh, called Orange Grove, and it's in today's Delray Beach. Then Fort Lauderdale, we recognize that name, and Key Biscayne in Miami. Those were the first five. And then in 1886, 10 years later, they built five more, and most of them were north, but one was kind of in between the first two. Sandra Thurlow's book, Gilbert's Bar, House of Refuge, Home of History, chronicles some dramatic shipwrecks and storms. The most dramatic shipwreck happened right at Gilbert's Bar, and that's the House of Refuge that's still standing. We call them House of Refuge, it a House of Refuge, even though it served as a Coast Guard station from 1915 to 1945. But we go back to its original name, House of Refuge. But in 1904, there were two shipwrecks uh, back-to-back during hurricane season uh, in October 1904, and they were quite dramatic, and uh, I have written about them in my book on Gilbert's Bar, and uh, that one of them has been made into an underwater uh, uh, monument or or historical uh, site and uh, is listed in Tallahassee, and they have uh, a plaque, and they have, uh, you know, ceremonies uh, to mark its uh, anniversary and and public education to realize just uh, because the Gulf Stream was right off our coast that it was a shipping lane and these things happened and that it was part of our history. Surviving a shipwreck can obviously be an intense experience and in at least one case led to a marriage. My favorite story about uh, the keepers of the House of Refuge is that uh, a a Norwegian, Axel Johansson, was a victim of shipwreck and floated ashore and uh, it's in the location of Cape Canaveral now, and well, it was then too, always, but he came ashore and was nursed back to health and went back to Norway, and when he realized that the days of sailing ships were over, and he remembered uh, Florida and its warmth and the hospitable family, and he came back and he married the daughter of the keeper who found him and nursed him back to life. If a refuge housekeeper was lucky enough to have a family, all of the members would usually participate in the day-to-day operation of the facility. Sometimes a lonely keeper would attempt to acquire a family. Sandra Thurlow. Captain Bessie, uh, who was a keeper at the Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge, he recruited a family that was coming down the intercoastal waterway. Of course, it wasn't called that at the time. But when they stopped at a nearby dock, he went over and said, why don't you come and live with me and help me build boats? Later, he was married, but at that time, he wasn't. So he uh, got a family uh, by 
uh, his own devices, you know, a barred family. And, uh, but a family was very important because it was companionship. And then after a storm, uh, a, uh, you know, they could walk the beach and, and go in one direction while the captain went in the other direction. And their reports where the sun actually did uh, a, a, a big uh, a part of rescue, even though they aren't supposed to rescue. If someone's right there foundering you, uh, you give them a hand. Sandra Thurlow's daughter-in-law, Deanna Wintercorn Thurlow, helped to design the book, Gilbert's Bar, House of Refuge, Home of History. The book contains many historic photographs. They're very rare of the, of the uh, House of Refuge era. If you even get a picture of a keeper, it's uh, a precious thing because there were so few photographs in the late 1800s. And so uh, I was lucky enough uh, in our town, Stewart, Florida, there was a family, the Coutant family, who had served at the Oak Hill or Mosquito Lagoon House of Refuge for 22 years. And they had many photographs because they uh, had a camera, which is rare, and were photographers of sorts. And so we have that documented in their photographs. And I was able to make copies uh, years ago. Gilbert's Bar House is the only house of refuge built in Florida that is still in existence. As Sandra Thurlow explains, you can still visit the structure. It's been a museum since 1955 when the Seroptimus Club created the Historical Society of Martin County. And the Historical Society has been responsible for, for uh, running it. It is owned by the county. It is owned by the people of Martin County. But it's been a museum since 1955. And uh, there are exhibits there, and the rooms are furnished like they might have been for the keepers. And uh, there's a boathouse and a gift shop, and uh, it's open uh, daily uh, from 10 to 4, and uh, it's a nice place to visit. In the early 20th century, most of Florida's houses of refuge became Coast Guard stations, and after World War II, most were acquired by local governments. Many succumbed to the elements or were torn down, leaving only Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge. The reason the uh, Gilbert's Bar remains probably it's on a very narrow section of Hutchinson Island, but that is an outcropping of the Anastasia Rock. So it's that old thing about building your house upon a rock if you want it to stand. So it hasn't washed away. Of course, erosion is a big element on the other locations. Sandra Thurlow's book, Gilbert's Bar, House of Refuge, Home of History, is available online at myfloridahistory.org. Just click on Books and Gifts. Is it my imagination? Or is it getting darker? Are the waves getting higher? I'm a million miles from anywhere. A million miles from anything I
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can find out about our annual meeting and other special events, explore historic photographs, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Coca-Cola, from Pemberton's kettle to the nation to the world. Coca-Cola, daily gaining in strength, drawn from the experience of the past and the opportunities of the here and now. The Root Family Museum at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach has one of the largest collections of Coca-Cola memorabilia in the world, including antique signage, vintage soda machines, and much more. In the early 20th century, Coca-Cola had bottling plants throughout Florida. As Janie Gould explains, one of them was on the Treasure Coast. Forget two-liter plastic for a moment. There was a time when Coke came in six-ounce glass bottles. You remember those little green bottles with the skinny necks? William Pop Cross ran a Coca-Cola bottling plant in Fort Pierce back in the 1930s and 40s. Carrie Sue Ray is his daughter. My daddy had one truck. They sold so little Coke, they took it everywhere. My daddy's district went as far as Winter Beach and as far south as Drew Stewart and west to Hee Junction. And when they would go out there, it would be an all-day thing because it was all dirt roads and the truck would get stuck. It would be a real ordeal to take maybe 10 cases. Were these in the little bottles? Those were the six-ounce bottles. The syrup and the water was up above the bottling part. The bottles came in on a conveyor. You could see the bottle being filled with the ounce of Coke syrup and the rest with the water, and then the cap would be fastened on, and there was a man standing at the end of the conveyor belt, and they would pick up four bottles, two in each hand, and lay them over a light to inspect, make sure that the bottles were clean and there was nothing contaminating in that coat. Those bottles were washed with really hot, hot water. They went on a conveyor through a regular washing process with really strong soap and a drying process there and then went up and around and just followed the circle. The syrup comes in and the water comes in and the cap's put on. Occasionally it would get stuck and it would break the bottle all to pieces. I wonder how many bottles of Coke it produced in a day. I don't know how much, but he could have told you exactly how many ounces of syrup they used because they had to keep very strict inventory. My dad could look at the way they had the Coke cases stacked and count them. All of it was six-ounce bottles, and they were a nickel. 
and a carton of Coke was a quarter. At first, you had little um, wooden cartons where you bought six Cokes. Do you have any of those? I did, but over the years, my things have disappeared. I wish I had all my Coke stuff. I had little trucks with Coke bottles on. And, of course, they made everything. Pencils, clocks, tablets, every kind of advertising thing. You were saying that the Cokes that had just come off the assembly line tasted better. It was much better. It was still really cold from the cold water that was used to mix with it. When I grew up, I had all the Coke I wanted, you know, which, of course, was not too wonderful health-wise later in your years. We didn't know that. It was just good, and we just had whatever we wanted. Did you have it with every meal? No, but I had it there in my refrigerator, or I stopped by the Coke plant and got it as it came off the assembly line. Was it a hard sell to sell the public on Coke as opposed to other soft drinks? I don't think so. Eventually, people got to realize what a good drink it was. At that time, there were places that would buy one case at the time, and my daddy would take them one case if that's all they wanted. But eventually, we had four different trucks going west and south and north to sell Coke. And there was one place on the beach. By the time he left there in 1945, we had the big amphibious space, and they were selling thousands of cases of Coke. But before that, he had to really work to sell to the grocery stores. My mother was not allowed to buy groceries anywhere that they didn't sell Coca-Cola. And we didn't dare drink anything that wasn't Coca-Cola because there was a knee-high bottling plant here, too. Brand X. Exactly. And we just thought it was so good to sneak that because they made these great big tall bottles. And we just thought that was wonderful. If your daddy didn't catch it. That was Carrie Sue Ray of Fort Pierce. Cheney Gould from WQCS prepared that report. New place we can't resist them. That's how we build up steam. Here on the all-star system, we build an all-star team. Ready to meet the opposition with a happy punch. That the best defense is the best offense. We beat them to the punch. It's a rough and tumble knockdown, drag out affair. With plenty of skill to play it. There's plenty of solid teamwork there, and we're the ones to say it. We work as a team for the goal, this team that we explore. Our team is the winning combination. This team is made up of the men and women who bottle Coca-Cola and the men and women of the Coca-Cola Company! This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
For many, the words "company town" conjure up images of life in smoky mill towns in New England or Appalachia. Bill Dudley talks with two people who remember the rise and fall of a town that was part of one of our state's biggest industries: the harvesting of giant cypress trees from Florida's swamplands. We just thought it was going to go on forever, and it didn't. It couldn't, but we didn't realize that. I, I didn't realize it. So when the mill closed, it was a shock. Oh, everybody knew it's going to give out because the cypress was giving out. The only question is, it's just when. Lorise Abraham and her brother Lewis listened to a recording of Engine 104, the company steam locomotive, pulling a load of cypress logs into their hometown of Lacucci, Florida. It's a sound that has echoed in their dreams for the last 60 years. It was a, a great place to grow up. A way of life that doesn't exist. Located an hour north of Tampa, between present-day U.S. 301 and the Withlacoochee River, the town of Lacoochee became home to one of the last large-scale cypress logging operations in the South. When the Cummer Sons Cypress Company came here in 1922, I think it was around 1,400 people worked there at one time. Only 400 to 600 worked in the mill, but in the logging operations and hauling operations and cutting the cypress out in the woods and They made four dollars and twenty cent a week. Now that don't sound like much. They made ten cent an hour, but ten cent an hour then was money. The 1920s and 30s were boom times at the mill when ancient cypress trees up to 15 feet in diameter were being cut down in nearby wetlands. They were huge trees. They used to get them in there so big, and wood was so inexpensive, and they didn't think nothing of it. They would get these huge monster cypress in and they'd blow them up with a、uh, dynamite so they could get them. In pieces that they could run through the eight-foot bandsaw, they had a lot of pecky cypress in it then, and, and pecky cypress was worth nothing. And they used to run it through what they called a hog, and the hog would beat it into small splinters, and they'd put it in the fuel house for firing their boilers, and then the rest of it would go out to a burner, and they had a big burning pile out there that burnt cypress for thirty, thirty-five years, billions of dollars. At today's value, worth a pecky cypress. The town prospered along with the mill. The Abrahams moved to Lacoochee in 1923, and their father opened a store on the town's main street. The store that Daddy had was sort of a gathering place for everybody. The wives came in in the day, the ones that didn't work, and they'd have their Coca-Cola and they'd sit and talk. And at night, the men would come from the mill and listen to the radio or talk politics or talk baseball mostly. Oh, and there was the usual Saturday night brawls at the bar, which was two stores down from us. By the mid 1930s, there were six grocery stores, two barber shops, several restaurants and bars, four churches and a school, a doctor's office, and two movie theaters. Black and white working people were moving in, perhaps attracted by the security of life in a company town. An expert on Florida's logging industry, Jeff Drobny is executive director of the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History near Atlanta. These were normal, everyday people who were looking to sustain themselves and their families, and they saw an, an opportunity where they could come in and work for a lumber company that would provide them with steady wages. And many of them were attracted to company-dominated towns such as Lacoochee because it offered housing, it offered schools, it offered a certain quality of life that one might not find. Elsewhere in Florida, prior 
to the middle part of the 20th century. At 5 o'clock Friday afternoon, the steam whistle announced payday at the mill and a weekend of recreation for young and old. You talk about a playground. We played up and down the Withacoochee River, and we'd swim and dry off and swim again and have mud fights. And, and on Saturday night, we'd come out of the movies, and we'd dance down the highway to the store. It was just great. The streets of Lacoochee would be crowded with people. Every store would be open. Daddy'd stay open until 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. About the best way to put it, if you did something wrong, you didn't have to worry about telling your parents about it. By the time you got home, the, the grapevine system had already told them everything you did, and, and it was a, just a great place to live. When World War II began, many Cummer's Sons employees left for higher-paying jobs in the shipyards of Tampa or elsewhere in the state. Their places were taken by workers from Alabama and Mississippi. The character of the town began to change. Abraham says the mill should have ceased operation in the late 1940s, when most of the giant trees were gone. But company officials combed the state for cypress in a desperate attempt to keep the doors open. The stuff that they cut in the end was what we called, or what they referred to as pond cypress. It was 30 to 60 inches around, small stuff. 1958 was a sad year for the Abraham family and for the town. Good Friday of 1958, the old movie picture theater that was... Morgan's was a bar, and it caught on fire in the back, and the fire just wiped out all of the stores with the exception of the one that we referred to as Greek Gus's store, and that was the end of Lacucci. That summer, Lewis Abraham took his 8-millimeter movie camera to the sawmill to record the last cypress log being sawn into boards. That was the last day. Everybody knew it, and... Uh, there was a lot of teary eyes of grown people sitting around there watching that last log go through the mill. When Jace McIlvain wiped his hands and on that last board as it hit the chain to go down to the yard, and they knew they was out of a job, that they had to go somewhere because there wasn't nothing here for them anymore. The mill was gone and it was over with. And there was a couple of wet eyes around there, including yours truly. Today, the late afternoon sun reflects off broken glass in the high windows of the single great building that remains of the Cummer Sons complex. Gone are most of the hundreds of unpainted wood and tin company houses that once lined the dirt streets. Although the tracks are gone, the lonesome whistle of Engine 104 still sounds in the hearts and minds of the few remaining people who grew up in the sawmill town of Lacucci. Unique little town that probably thousands of them all over the U.S., but, but Coochie was, uh, was my town. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you'll join us again next week, and until then, please visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.